This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Thanks for joining us on this special edition of America Changed Forever. Lost in all the other news was a pretty stunning headline from the Centers for Disease Control. The number of deaths by firearms has grown. Disparities in firearms deaths by race have grown. Firearm suicide rates remain high. The numbers are grim, but they are important to each and every community across this country, and yet the topic gets lost in the busy news cycle. Not here, though. Not on this edition of America Change Forever, where we will also talk to the executive director of a community organization in Oakland, California. We're going to talk about what they are doing to help turn the tide of violence. And then there's my discussion with Professor Saul Cornell on the history of this divisive pro-gun rights, pro-gun control debate. Dr. Cornell has an interesting take on the current discussion around firearms. First, though, the CDC's data on firearms deaths. Anyone who's trying to figure out what's contributing to the crime and gun violence in this country should really pay attention to this interview. Listen to the numbers from the CDC. Firearms were involved in 79% of all homicides and 53% of all suicides in 2020. According to the CDC, firearm homicide rates are consistently highest among males, adolescents, young adults, and non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic American Indian and Alaska Native people. Dr. Deb Howry is the acting principal deputy director at the CDC. Dr. Howry, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this study that you did, it made headlines this week. You know, I'm just curious, as someone who's done a lot of reporting on some of the crime across the country, uh, what was it about this study that you perhaps knew would get a lot of attention? What was it? I think that there's been a significant increase in the past year. You know, when you look at the increase from 2019 to 2020, and really the racial and ethnic disparities are striking. The the fact that, you know, um, there was a 21-fold difference in the number of homicides in young black men compared to young white men, and it's something we've got to do something about in our country. Well, did... Did the research look at why that is? What is happening in those neighborhoods that perhaps is not happening in other neighborhoods? So we didn't look at the context per se, but what we did look at was poverty. And we saw that homicide rates were about 4.5 times as high in the highest poverty um, communities. And suicide rates were also about 1.3 times as high um, in the highest poverty counties. So this shows that there's many different factors that can lead to homicide and suicide. And really, 
looking at impoverished communities for what we can do to support people is really important. And how much how much of a factor was is the pandemic? So this study didn't look at what caused these rates, but we did put in our paper that certainly things like economic stressors, job loss, social isolation, and disruption of services could have impacted these results. And in impoverished communities, they could be more prone to these stressors. And is this the kind of annual study that the CDC does, or is this unprecedented in some ways? So we do report on our firearm data on an annual basis, and we always report on leading causes of death. What is different about this report, and it's the first ever vital signs that CDC has done on firearm homicides and suicides, is that we really focus on what can you do about it? What can a community do about it? What can a person do about it? And focusing on some of the prevention strategies. All right. Well, let's let's tick through some of those prevention strategies and, and what the CDC believes that policymakers can do in some of these communities to turn the tide. So there's, in my mind, three different areas to look at when we're talking about prevention strategies. And one are strategies in the communities themselves, things that can really provide some economic stability, such as affordable housing, childcare subsidies, or earned income tax credits. And then you can look at the community itself. And there have been studies that have shown that if you take um, a vacant lot, you know, that has a lot of tr- trash in it, and you remediate it, and really um, add trees and greenery to it, it brings a community together and decreases violent crime. And then the third area is really focusing on those who are at greatest risk. So things like street outreach workers that can de-escalate a conflict before it becomes a homicide or violence um, prevention programs in hospitals to where somebody comes in after an injury, has motivational interviewing and gets linked to really important um, services to help with their needs or things like safe storage. You know, I'm an ER doc. And so if I saw somebody come in with depression or a suicide attempt to talk with them about if they have a firearm in their house, how to store it safely. What is, what is interesting is also what you left out. Law enforcement. You didn't mention police at all. So police are an important part of this. What I would say is every sector is important. Public health, the faith community, education, law enforcement, everyone has a role to play. Now, how many did you have researchers doing this? Uh, How big or limited were the resources that you had to put this together? So we use several of our CDC data sets, including the National Vital Statistics data to look at the homicides and then some of the Census Bureau. So we did data analyses on this. The prevention strategies you know, that I highlighted, some of these we are funding um, through our appropriated funds for firearm violence research, but the data collections are from existing CDC data sets. Our scientists, you know, work around the clock to really put out data on leading causes of death and other public health threats. I'm looking through some of the statistics here. Among the key findings for firearm suicides, rates increase most notably among non-Hispanic males aged 10 to 44 years old. Particularly among American Indian and Alaska Native populations. So what what kind of data do you gather from that kind of statistic? So we, when we also looked at poverty, we saw that that was also suicides were higher in impoverished communities. 
I, I also, to me, it's not just about the number, like what, how big the increase was. It's about the people behind the numbers. And so when we look at suicide deaths, we're talking about 24,000 people that died by suicide. Those are preventable deaths. And that's something we've got to really talk with, you know, our neighbors, our friends, our family about that. If you're worried about someone in your life dying by suicide, or if you have thoughts to call 1-800-273-TALK to get help. How much of that, though, I mean, do you, do you factor in the lack of mental health resources across the country? So mental health resources are very important and can provide people needed supports. But we also did a CDC study back in 2018. Um, and in that study, we found that nearly half the people who died by suicide did not have a known mental health diagnosis. Things like relationship issues, job loss, substance use disorder were also contributing factors. Also among the key findings that rates of firearm homicides were higher and showed larger increases in counties with higher poverty levels. It's pretty clear what that means. I think what it means is, you know, a lot of the communities that are impoverished really need additional community support, whether it be through earned income tax credits, through programs in schools um, that really provide information on job training and conflict management. And when I take a step back and think about what these findings are, you know, where you live, work, worship, go to school and play can impact your health. And so we really need to make sure that these drivers of inequities, that we address them. But, you know, even though your, your study is new, uh, some of the findings we've heard before, and yet we're here we are again uh, uh, in cities across the country, not all cities, but cities across the country going through a period of rising crime. Um, is it that the circumstances surrounding the pandemic have have changed this country uh, and the people living in this country in in such a way that they're experiencing the, the type of stress that you haven't seen before? So what I would say is there's not a single cause to this, just like there's not a single prevention strategy, but I spent 15 years in a county ER, and the number of moms I had a comfort who lost their son was heartbreaking. And in my mind, if we can prevent one life, 10 lives, 1,000 lives, by focusing on these prevention strategies, we must do it. And you're right. We've seen these numbers before. This year we saw, or in 2020, we saw the highest increase. This means we just really need to act urgently so that we don't continue to see these increases. We know how to prevent this violence. Now's the time to take action in our communities to prevent this violence. So far in 2022, do you, do you see the numbers that you've gathered uh, between 2019 and 2020? Do you, do you see the trend or the tide turning this year? So we don't have the 2022 fatality data yet. For 2021, for the um, first 10 months, we have seen continued increases in our preliminary data. All right. So what you're saying is that the preliminary numbers are, are showing increases that will be worse than what you found between 2019 and 2020. If the trend continues, yes. Dr. Deb Howry of the CDC, thank you. Thank you. So I tell anyone who asks me, 
you know, Jeff, what is going on with this surge in crime across the country? Typically, one of the answers I give them is that it's being fueled in many of these cities by the availability of guns. Availability of guns. That's a term that I've used because I want people to know that I'm not talking about, um, you know, I'm not taking a stance, a pro-gun control stance, pro-gun rights stance. It's just a fact. When I talk to law enforcement, they say, you know, a lot of the guns that we see used in these crimes are have been purchased illegally. Um, a lot of the people doing these crimes are people we've seen before in our systems. They call them trigger pullers, and we've talked about that in the past on this program. I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into the availability of guns, because the fact is, gun sales in recent years have skyrocketed, and the numbers keep going up. The numbers of people purchasing guns, guns purchases, the numbers just keep going up. And I wanted to talk to our next guest about what, what is driving that? Is it just part of American culture? People want to be armed. I don't know. Let's, let's talk about it. I wanted to bring in Saul Cornell. Uh, Professor Cornell, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So you're, you're well aware that gun sales have skyrocketed during the pandemic. In fact, there were signs that the, the numbers were going up before the pandemic. What, what do you think is driving those numbers up? Well, of course, when you talk about guns in America, you're dealing with, um, first of all, a very unique set of circumstances and problems because no other country in the world has the levels of gun ownership that America has. No other industrialist democracy has the levels of gun violence that America has. And no other country in the world treats guns uh, and imbues them with the same amount of significance and symbolic uh, meaning as American culture. So uh, the first thing to note is that America, you know, the idea of American exceptionalism has, you know, has strengths and weaknesses as a concept. But I think anyone who looks at the gun issue would say that American uh, America's relationships Americans and their relationship to guns are exceptional. All right. So, so given what you've just said, how would you characterize, you know, what the average American sees in gun ownership? What does it really mean to them? Well, I think, again, uh, given both the very complex history of gun regulation and gun ownership in America, and given the important and very different regional gun cultures that currently exist in America, I mean, your relationship to guns is going to be very different if you live in Alaska than if you live in the Bronx, for instance. Uh, and it's also important, I think, to note that in America today, if one talks about gun culture, one really needs to do that in a in the sense of gun cultures. We don't really have a single monolithic uniform gun culture. We have multiple gun cultures. And three of the most important subcultures, if you will, in America today in terms of gun ownership are 
sort of traditional sportsman whose interest and involvement with guns typically relates to hunting. And that is the arguably the least influential politically and the the most uh, clearly in decline as in terms of percentage of gun owners. Then you have people who really buy guns out of fear and out of concern about um, uh, self-defense. And then you have people who really view guns as the ultimate uh, check on tyranny and an affirmation of certain values that they see as definitional in terms of who they are as people. Uh, They also see it in terms of a particular vision of the American past and the American future. And those are three slightly different cultures. Uh, the, 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 the people who invest guns with all of these symbolic meanings, the, the last group I mentioned, are also more likely to own lots and lots of guns. This is where you find your sort of super gun owners, people who own 10 or more firearms. Is there anything wrong with owning 10 or more firearms? Well, um, I wouldn't frame it in terms of, is there anything wrong with it? But I'll tell you an anecdote that I think is illustrative. A number of years ago, I was interviewed by the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and I used the phrase, common sense, uh, middle of the road gun regulation. And the, 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 the person interviewing me said, oh, that's an interesting turn of phrase. What do you mean by that in America? I said, well, I'll give you one example. So for instance, there are only uh, and at the time, I think there were maybe three in Mal, maybe there are only two states that limit the number of handguns you can purchase in a year to one gun a month. And he said, but that's 12 guns a year. That's not gun control. If Canada instituted a policy like that, it would involve a mass armament of our society, not a, a regulation of guns. So I think that sort of captures that the norms that govern our debate over guns in America are just so radically different that it's almost hard to explain it to anyone who lives outside of the United States. They just don't understand. Like, for instance, if you were to tell people that after the Sandy Hook uh, horrific shooting that gun sales shot up, not gun regulations were instituted across the board, they would scratch their head. But yet in America, the, the pattern is repeated almost after every sensational shooting that hits the headlines, that you don't see all that much in the change of gun regulations. What you see is uh, huge numbers of people going out to purchase firearms. I'll give you another example that uh, I sketched to my students recently. There's a drug called Accutane that many um, adolescents take for uh, when they have skin problems, but it also uh, has some association with uh, suicide ideation. And a congressman from Michigan's son, after taking Accutane for his acne, got a hold of his dad's gun and killed himself. And of course, the reaction was to regulate the Accutane, not guns. Um, I think that sort of captures in a nutshell what is going on in our culture. Do you think, do you think that there, are, there will ever be a time when there isn't this Discussion that is divisive about gun rights and gun control in this country. Do you think we will ever get to a point where there is uh, this search for common ground and legislation that does actually address uh, some of the unprecedented levels of firearm deaths and gun violence in communities across America? 
Well, I would flip the question on its head and say the following. It wasn't that long ago that even Republicans favored a range of gun regulations that would be almost unthinkable in terms of today's contemporary political debates. For instance, if you compare Richard Nixon's uh, policies on gun regulation with Barack Obama's, if you're a gun control advocate, you would take Richard Nixon in a heartbeat, um, which is kind of shocking, but true. Yeah. So, so what, what has changed in the debate? Is it, is it, uh, is it that these part, these political parties have changed? Have, have the times changed where that kind of argument won't work anymore because of the, the special interest involved? Uh, the NRA, for example, uh, what do you think has changed? Well, I think all of those uh, things have changed. I think the gun lobby has changed the way it frames arguments. Um, I think that American politics has changed both in certain structural ways. You have hyper partisanship, you have extreme gerrymandering. Uh, you also have the rise of uh, social media, which generally inflames the most extreme points of view in the, you know, the wider world of the internet and the blogosphere. So all of those things have each contributed some toxicity to our debate about how to frame a sensible gun policy that recognizes the indisputable fact that guns are very important to a lot of Americans and there are a lot of guns in America. You know, you still seem to hear debates as if the choice was no guns or no gun laws, which is kind of a silly framing. But time and time again, I hear those kinds of um, those kinds of arguments like, so you're saying, you know, we shouldn't have a right to own guns. And I'm like, well, nobody's saying that. Or you're saying, you know, we need a draconian Japanese like gun control. Well, I don't think anyone really is saying that, at least in the mainstream. But if you just think about it, um, in most places, you don't even need any range time to get a concealed weapons permit. I don't think I've ever met uh, a police officer, at least from an urban police force. I know there's a big divide between rural sheriffs and urban uh, police forces, nor have I ever met a member of the United States military, at least at the officer rank. Uh, th those tend to be the people I come into contact with uh, in teaching. Uh, quite frequently, and of course, uh, ROTC undergrads, but all of them, you know, love guns, but recognize you don't step out onto a street uh, just because you bought a shiny new Glock. You need to be properly trained and you need a lot of range time to master how to use one of those weapons. You remind me of some of the reporting that I've done over the last six months. And uh, one story I did talk to ATF officials who confirmed what we've been seeing, and that is some of these criminals are using, not some, many of them are using fully automatic weapons, weapons that have been modified to fire like machine guns that you would see during the Prohibition era. And so you have these law enforcement officials essentially outgunned on city streets because these weapons are being modified and nothing is changing, frankly, to protect law enforcement lives. And as I said earlier, uh, Professor Cornell, we are experiencing 
in this country. Unprecedented levels of firearm deaths and gun violence. But you've written about another era of pronounced gun violence in the early 1800s. Could you tell us about that time and how the government responded back then? Sure. Well, one of the many ironies uh, when you enter into this debate is we tend to think that the Second Amendment, um, you know, most people will say, of course, it's the Second Amendment because it's the second most important. But of course, it originally was the Fourth Amendment and only became the Second Amendment when the first two were not adopted. So there are a lot of myths about the Second Amendment that bear almost no relation to the historical reality. So one thing that it's very clear is that there wasn't much of a gun violence problem at the time of the Second Amendment. I mean, for a modern American, you would think that the thing that must have been on their minds was individual self-defense. But actually, that wasn't primarily what was on their minds because levels of gun violence in the era of the Second Amendment were incredibly low um, outside of the slave South, where levels of violence were somewhat higher. So it's not until easily concealable and reasonably reliable handguns come into existence during the market revolution of the early 19th century that you get the first gun violence problem in America. And that's where you begin to see the debate over concealed carry versus open carry. Uh, We see the first type of modern firearms regulations, you know, bans on sale or bans on carry. In the 18th century, uh, the big problem was not gun violence. The big problem was Americans did not want military-style weapons. They wanted guns that were useful to put food on the table. So first of all, nobody, hardly anyone, owned handguns. I mean, that was something you owned if you needed to duel. Uh, And so the average farmer is not going to go hunting a turkey with the kind of dueling pistols that Alexander Hamilton uh, used in in his duel with Aaron Burr. Uh, Similarly, the kind of brown best musket, which is very heavy uh, because it has to be because it may be used as a bludgeon in hand to hand combat, which is, you know, quite common in 18th century military uh, ground warfare, also has to have a bayonet attached to it. Because once you get that first shot off, if if you're in the field, you're going to be rushed by the enemy. And if you don't can't use that as either a club or a bayonet, you are pretty much toast. So, you know, again, farmers didn't want those kind of weapons. They wanted the uh, more, uh, the lighter and more useful for hunting, you know, things like fowling pieces, which are more like shotguns. And so the irony is, you know, in in today's America, it's like people are worried the government's going to come take our guns away. And in the 18th century, they were worried, why isn't the government doing enough to encourage us to get the right kind of guns? Given the history of this debate, where do you think the the National Rifle Association stands? The NRA, it had all sorts of uh, internal turmoil, to put it mildly. Does it, in your opinion, have the clout that it once had? Well, I, I, there's no question it doesn't have the clout that it once had. I wouldn't say it's out of the game entirely, but I think people don't realize that in many respects, the NRA is not even close to the most radical gun rights group in America. A lot of the lawsuits that are percolating through the courts are not primarily lawsuits instigated by the NRA, but they're instigated by you know a range of more radical gun rights groups that describe themselves as no compromise. 
I mean, these really are groups that would do away with almost every kind of gun regulation if they had their way. Could you name some of those groups? Well, you have the Citizens Committee to Keep and Bear Arms. You have the Gun Owners of America. You have the Firearms Policy Coalition. You have a series of citizens defense leagues across America. So, I mean, they don't, they're not as well-funded, not as well-organized uh, as the NRA, and they're not as long-standing, but they are involved in lots and lots of lawsuits. One of the big pushes now is to make sure that 18-year-olds can have access to f- semi-automatic weapons uh, and, you know, to basically argue that because we made young people serve in the militia in the founding year, where they, of course, were supervised by by adults, that that translates into 21st century America to allowing anyone who's 18 to go out and purchase any weapon they want, which again, seems to be uh, for anyone who's ever met an 18-year-old man and anyone who's ever been an 18-year-old man has to give you some cause for pause. And you would think that giving people semi-automatic weapons, ones that are easily convertible to fully automatic, as you pointed out, when their frontal lobes are not completely filled out, is perhaps not the highest priority in terms of advancing the cause of liberty in contemporary America. But the suits keep on coming. Dr. Saul Cornell, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. And Marks, Executive Director of Youth Alive, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's start at the beginning. Tell me about Youth Alive and what its mission is. At Youth Alive, we save lives by preventing violence before it occurs, by intervening in moments of crisis and danger, and by healing the trauma that violence leaves in its wake. You are located in the Bay Area. Yes, we are proudly based here in Oakland. Yeah, and that's, that is a community that is, has seen its share of violence. Of course, a lot of cities right now dealing with spikes in crime. So how are you uh, trying to help the community at Youth Alive um, get through what many people see as a crisis there? Yeah, I think, uh, Jeff, you're right to say it's a, it's a crisis in a lot of places. We've seen a national crisis in terms of violence increasing. And it happened for a lot of reasons, but most of them can be linked back to the pandemic and all the ways that it caused economic and social disruption, the ways that it created a mental health crisis. And so uh, conflicts that used to be resolved easily, people no longer have those skills because we're all so stressed and things are leading to more violence. And then you add into that, that we have seen a huge increase in guns, uh, handguns being bought and used that we're seeing just more, more of a violence than we've seen in a while. And um, that's been especially hard here in Oakland because before the pandemic, we had actually seen deeper decreases in violence than other communities. And Youth Alive was part of the reason we saw those decreases. What we saw was that as a city, Oakland invested in several strategies that decreased violence, including community-based violence intervention strategies. Something that Youth Alive is very proud of is that Youth Alive had the first hospital-based violence intervention program. It's a program that responds after a shooting or stabbing to the hospital, works with someone in the aftermath to make sure that they and their friends don't feel the need to retaliate 
and instead they're offered a path to healing and to becoming someone that can turn that painful experience into uh, a new direction in their life uh, where they can be successful. The way you outline it makes it sound so simple. It's not though, right? This takes a lot of work, a lot of dedication to get you know someone to, to really change their lives around. Yes. So one of the things that Youth Alive does that makes our program successful is we are able to connect with people. Everything we do is based in relationship. That's how people change in relationship. That's how people heal in relationship. And we're able to build relationships because of who we are. Caught in the Crossfire, which was the first hospital-based violence intervention program, was created by a young man, Sherman Spears, who was himself the victim of a gunshot that left him paraplegic. He went and said, I can relate to these people. I want to create a program where I can talk to people who can relate to me because I've been where they've been. I'm from their community. I've had this happen to me. And so I can talk to them. Building that relationship is how we get in the door. It's not easy to build those relationships. People are traumatized. People are fearful. People don't trust that things can get better because they've been let down by institutions that are supposed to help them. But at Youth Alive, we bring people who are trained to build those relationships and then walk you through the steps to help change your life. I wonder, do communities have the time um, for the success that Youth Alive uh, sees in some of the people that it, it works with? I mean, it sounds like when you make a difference, you're doing it one person out of a time. Or is, is that not the case? Do you, you know, does word of your success get around and then more people join the effort? How, how does it work to really make an impact immediately? Je- Jeff, when we think about violence prevention, people say, ah, oh, it's, like it's like a river. I heard um, my colleague John Rich talk about this. It's like a river. We have to help people from falling into the river got to build a fence around the river so no one falls in and drowns. But the truth is people are in the river and we have to take them out of the river. And at Youth Alive, we do both things. And here's the beauty of it. Through our advocacy work, through working with young people in schools to do peer education, to talk to other people about ways to keep themselves safe, we're preventing people from falling into the river. And those people that are in the river, we're pulling them out. And maybe it's one person, but you would not believe how many of those individuals that we pull out of the river, dry themselves off, and walk right up to the top of the river and build that fence so that no one else falls in again. There is a ripple effect when you change someone's life. People say that hurt people hurt people. That's how they explain violence, and that is true. But what we believe at Youth Alive is that healed people heal people, and we have seen that. If anything, we're not creating people who can do this work. We are just harnessing the people that are already in the community that can do this work. And we're giving them a pathway to do what they know how to do, which is to recover. What kind of person does this kind of work? Why did you want to do it? The people that do the work that Youth Alive does tend to be people who have a profound personal connection to violence, to incarceration that happens as a result of violence, and want to see a better world for their community. I myself got involved in this work because of my mother. 
and she uh, worked in a prison and worked with people who were coming home. And once I knew, once I met and spent time with people who that was their life, I couldn't, I was changed. I couldn't be the same. I couldn't act the same. I had to figure out a way to make sure that no one went to prison and no one did anything that got them to go to prison. Well, what, what is it about those interactions that caused you to change as a person? I fear that this will make me sound like someone who is not very well informed about the world, but I have to admit that what changed me about those interactions was just exactly how normal they were, how much I could meet a woman who seemed exactly like my mother, but her life had been marked by trauma and violence from an early age and incarceration and crime in adulthood, but was just so much like, so much like me, so much like my mom. And it took getting to know someone for me to see that if not for certain life experiences, that could have been me. How long have you been doing this kind of work? Uh, I have been in this field for about 20 years. And I've been at Youth Alive for 12 years. I wonder, when you listen to public officials in the Bay Area, or even in Washington, talk about violence prevention and turning these crime numbers around, do you think that they talk about the kind of community work that you do enough? Do you think there's enough focus on that aspect of turning uh, crime around in, in neighborhoods across the country? I think one of the things that's hard about how we as a country talk about crime is that we only have one way to look at it. When we talk about crime, generally all we talk about is police and incarceration. And we don't talk about the other ways that we can end violence. I mentioned that at Youth Alive, we had the first hospital-based violence intervention program. There have been studies done, science, that shows that someone who receives intervention after, uh, after being shot is significantly less likely to be arrested later and is significantly less likely to be hurt later. At Youth Alive, about 3% of the people that we work with will get shot again. Nationally, about 44% of the people who get shot will get shot again. That's science. That's research. But that's not how we think about, that's not how we talk about violence. We don't talk about violence as an injury. We talk about violence as a crime. And until we start thinking about violence as an injury and we start talking about healing instead of punishment, we're not going to be able to protect people who are at risk for violence. It is a component of this work. It is a component of talking about crime to say we're going to lock someone up. But it is an essential part of helping an actual victim to ensure that they, the victim, doesn't get hurt again. Let's talk about the process of actually going to a hospital and speaking with someone who has been a victim of violence. How often do they 
order you out of their room? Uh, that's a great question. So not that often because we're not coming to talk about violence. We're coming to say hi. We're coming to see, hey, what they feed you for lunch? Can I jump over to the commissary and get you something? We're there not to talk about violence. We're there to build a relationship. Interesting. And the, the people that you're seeing in these hospitals that you're targeting, are they teenagers, men, women, all ages, or is there a, a, a particular demographic that you're going for? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, the people that we work with, and so this is across all our programs. We also have a reentry program. We also have a program that responds after homicides. We also have uh, programs that work in schools. Um, all of our programs will work with uh, someone of any age. And, um, and it is also true that uh, for every, in every culture across the world, people that are involved in violence tend to, tend to be primarily young men between 15 and 25. Um, unfortunately, what that looks like here in this country is it tends to be um, you know, gun violence because we have so many guns. Um, and so that's, that's true for us at Youth Alive. Our population that we work with, we work with very young people, we work with adults, we've worked with grandparents, um, but they tend to be um, young people, usually young men in their 20s. But we work with obviously women as well. Okay, so the next question is, why do you think that is? Why do you think this kind of gun violence is, is most prevalent among these young people? Um, so, again, every culture, violence tends to be concentrated around um, uh, mostly young men uh, of sort of that transition youth, young adult age. And... I suppose the reason has something to do with brain chemistry um, and how people are maturing uh, and uh, their ability to, um, you know, as, as we're all getting older. I mean, I remember my, my teen years, my early 20s, right? The uh, ability to separate impulse from action is just not as, not as well developed at that point in time. Um, and that's normal and that's fine um, to have arguments, to get in fights. The problem is when you have uh, things that are triggering your responses, right? A stressful environment that's making you on edge, so you're more likely to get uh, to, to get triggered into a conflict. And when you have a gun available to you in those impulsive moments of being triggered into a conflict. And that's what we're dealing with, not just in our community locally, but across this country, is people who uh, already might not necessarily be able to avoid a conflict getting triggered by the stress of our lives and having a gun handy. You keep talking about the stress of our lives. There are some people who might be listening to this and who would say, stress of our lives? Come on, that's ridiculous. How do you respond to them? I struggle to think that someone who has lived the last two years has not been under some stress uh, and has not noticed. It's not just gun violence that's gone up. It is gun suicide that's gone up. It is domestic violence that's gone up. If someone is listening to this and has not noticed all these things in their environment 
are causing people to become anxious and to react to stress, then I am very happy for them that they've managed to insulate themselves from the stress of these last two years. What do you, what do you want people to know um, about Youth Alive and the work that you're doing? What's the most important thing? Violence prevention and intervention work. These are strategies that we know to work. They've been studied and they've been shown to work. And yet, we don't invest in them to the level of the need. For example, there was a study done uh, in San Francisco, UCSF, uh, that showed that if you put a program in a hospital that worked with people after a gunshot, it paid for itself uh, after just two incidences. We're actually losing money in our society because we refuse to invest money in violence prevention and intervention work, programs that have been studied and shown to be effective. And Marks with Youth Live in Oakland, California. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. You can download and review this podcast and also check your local listings to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.